Welcome to Made in India SLP podcast with your hosts Kinari and Rabab. Hello everyone. Today is the day. It's time for our first podcast episode and we are so excited. We've had such a great response from the Indian speech language pathology community and we are so thankful to everyone. But no further delay, let's introduce our first speaker and the topic of the day. It's such a great honor to introduce Rinki Varandani Desai. Rinki is an ASHA certified speech language pathologist, certified brain injury specialist, and certified dementia practitioner, specializing in the assessment and treatment of cognitive linguistic and swallowing disorders in adults. She is the associate coordinator of the American Speech Language Hearing Association's special interest group on swallowing which is the ASHA SIC-13 and currently chairs the Dysphagia Research Society's COVID-19 task force. Rinki is the founder of the Medical SLP Forum, co-creator of the Dysphagia Therapy mobile app, and co-founder of the Swallowing Training and Education Portal, learning platform for dysphagia clinicians. A true Indian SLP in every sense from Mumbai, she completed her bachelor's from Aliyavar Jung National Institute of Speech and Hearing Disabilities before securing her master's of science degree from the University of Texas at Dallas. Rinki currently practices as the outpatient lead and clinical instructor in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She has presented nationally and internationally on topics related to adult dysphagia. She enjoys reading, writing, teaching, traveling with her husband, and doing what she can to help advance the profession by paying it forward. Welcome to our podcast, Rinki. So excited to have you here while we discuss dysphagia in the Indian community. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, I want to wish both of you all the best and I'm so excited for this new endeavor and initiative of yours. I am sure it's going to be so helpful for not just SLPs in India, but you know, hopefully clinicians around the world. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm so excited and honored that you chose me as your first guest. So I hope I can do justice to that. And I genuinely wish you both all the best. Thanks so much, Rinki. Dysphagia is a passion of many Indian SLPs, including us. And this podcast episode is meant to be a channel to target the Indian SLP voice and address the challenges Indian SLPs face in their daily practice. Why don't we begin by telling our listeners more about the roles and responsibilities that we have as a medical SLP? Yeah, I think that's an interesting discussion. And, you know, you can add in as well with both of you being medical SLPs. But my experience in India and even over here is that there generally isn't a lot of awareness about what speech language pathologists do, particularly in the medical setting. So I think the history of our field, um, it kind of started out with SLPs being the clinicians who work with kids, you know, with hearing impairments, um, autism, uh, speech and language developmental delays. So, and, you know, treating rehabilitating issues like articulation and stuttering. So I think the traditional view of an SLP is that that's a therapist who treats speech. The language component too, like what we do with aphasia isn't necessarily well understood. But now we have enough data to show that, you know, clinicians around the world are getting more and more involved in working in medical settings. Clinicians work um, as part of teams in acute care, within the ICU setting, 
in rehab, in NICU, which is neonatal intensive care units. And we're so involved in the medical things of side of things and we're so away from actually doing speech. So I think it's really important for everyone listening to use this as an opportunity to educate other physicians, even in other professionals about what our role is as medical SLPs. So we work with everyone from neonates to the geriatric population and everything in between. Uh, depending on which setting you're in, which facility you're in, you might specialize in working with children or you might specialize in working with adults. But overall, we treat disorders of feeding and swallowing, voice disorders, language disorders like aphasia, motor speech disorders like apraxia or dysarthria. And we also help in managing cognitive impairments. So a lot of these disorders are, don't come out of nowhere, right? They are a consequence or a symptom of a medical problem. So by consequence, we work with patients having stroke, having neurodegenerative diseases like ALS, MS, Parkinson's, dementia. Um, I'm speaking about adults because that's most of what I do. But if you're working with kids, you will have your kids with craniofacial anomalies or developmental delays. Kids with all kinds of syndromes who, you know, dysphagia or having a speech problem comes along with that. And then in the adult population, we also tend to specialize a lot with people with head and neck cancer, brain tumors, trauma. So there's, it's unfortunate that people don't always understand how critical our role is as medical SLPs and what we bring to the table. So I'm really passionate about advocating for that and spreading awareness about our role. That was really good, especially for like letting our audience know what our role as a medical SLP can be. Let's just begin with a common question that we've all heard about. What is an accurate or should I say an efficient protocol for the clinical swallow examination? Yeah, so the clinical bedside swallow exam is what we do when someone comes in complaining of a swallowing disorder. Again, my experience is with adults. So I will be speaking more about an adult clinical bedside swallow assessment and I'm going to refer to it as a CSE or clinical swallow exam. It's a really important tool in the assessment process. And it's no different from what we do when you would walk into a neurologist clinic or you would walk into an ENT clinic. It's where you as a patient complain about some symptoms. And the job of the clinician is to get all that information, form a hypothesis and really play the role of detective to investigate what's going on and then figure out the next treatment plan. So I really like to use um, analogies because I think people relate better to that. So I will use that in discussing some of these components. And I'm also going to spend some time really breaking this down. The clinical bedside swallow exam is not a protocol. You know, there are certain components that are a part of it, but you have to modify it based on the patient's complaints, the patient's presentation, which setting you're in. So are you in a ICU setting where the patient has, you know, you have limited time to get in and figure out what's going on and things are changing on a daily basis? Are you working with an ALS patient where muscle fatigue and weakness and the degenerative na nature of the disease is going to change your management? Or are you working with a dementia patient where you may not even be able to go through all the components because the person has a cognitive impairment? As a disclaimer is that this is not a protocol or a recommendation to say this is exactly what you need to do in a clinical bedside exam. Take this information and apply it to your practice and your setting using your best clinical judgment. 
so some of the components that are absolutely essential, the first and foremost, you know, you have to have to do a really good case history. You have to figure out what the patient's complaints are, you know, why they feel like they have a swallowing problem and really try to figure out if they're even their complaints even categorize a further dysphagia assessment or probably they have other things going on that might take precedence and might need another referral after which they can come back after that medical management and come back to you for a more detailed swallowing assessment or in the ICU setting maybe they're just, they're just not ready because of their cognitive status to do a full assessment so those are things you keep in mind before you do your case history if you're in a hospital you do a detailed chart review if you're working with a kid or an adult um, who has cognitive impairments, try to get the caregiver involved in the interview. So after your case history, you've done your chart review, you've kind of figured out what the problem is, what the symptoms are. You move on to a more detailed assessment of the structure and function of the oral um, mechanism or the structures that contribute to swallowing. You include a cranial nerve exam and sensory testing as part of that. Try to see if there's any influence of the cognitive status on the patient's performance. You then go on to assess things like vocal quality before and after you're feeding the patient, assess the strength of their cough reflex or their cough function. And then you move on to doing PO trials or food trials of different consistencies, moving from liquids to solids, seeing what their safety, efficiency, and presentation looks like with each of these consistencies. I also really like to change the bolus presentation and the volume. So the amount you're giving the patient, you know, have them self-feed themselves, use a cup, use a spoon, use a straw. So kind of alter the way you're presenting the bolus during the PO trials to see if it affects things like fatigue, their safety and efficiency, their respiratory rate, you know, any other factors that might be changing with these different PO trials, because obviously we want to make sure they're safe when they're eating, right? So you want to mimic real life situations for that patient as much as possible in that clinical environment so you can get the best information possible from your CSC. And then I think quality of life factors are really important. So you might feel like, oh, this person's problem is really mild. You know, it's, it's not a big deal. This is what I'm going to do next. And the person might feel like it's severely impacting their everyday function or quality of life. So it's really important to include some of those outcome measures like an eat 10 or a swall call assessment, have them fill out those questionnaires to just get a good perception of what they feel about their swallowing problem. How is it impacting their everyday functional status and quality of life? And then use all of this information together, like I said, to form a hypothesis. Most importantly, to determine does the person have dysphagia? If yes, do I need to recommend them for instrumental testing? And then further, you know, what strategies can I be using while I'm doing the instrumental exam and what your next um, steps would be to determine the best plan of care for this patient? Hopefully um, that was helpful for those looking to just learn more about the CSE. Thank you for that in-depth information, Rinki. The CSE is a resource that every Indian SLP needs. And I really like the fact that you included quality of life. That's something that we do have to keep in mind during our patient care. I think it's time that we target the elephant in the room. What should Indian clinicians do if they do not have access to instrumental evaluations like the modified barium swallow study or the feed? Yeah, you completely, you know, that you said it perfectly when you said that's the elephant in the room. And that is a real life situation. 
And I will go into some research about that just so clinicians are aware, but it's easy to say the CSC is not adequate or not enough to tell us about the pharyngeal phase of the swallow. And that's absolutely true. But again, not everyone has access to instrumental exams like the MBS, the modified barium swallow study or flexible endoscopic evaluation of swallowing or fees because of many issues, right? There are many layers to the problem. So if you guys don't mind, I want to address one specific component of that issue and then we can kind of move on to what you do when you don't have instrumentals. So a lot of people don't have instrumentals and this is even true for SLPs in the US. Let me tell you that, you know, Rabab yes. and Kennedy, you know that. It's not <laughs> yes, like I, I totally do know that. Yeah. So it's, you don't have it because of access. You don't have it because of limited resources. Those are different issues. In my humble opinion, a big reason we don't have instrumentals is because not enough of us have created a noise or raised a voice about it and advocated for it. And that's been my experience too where, you know, I was in a nursing home, the SLP before me for 10 years had never even brought up the topic of ordering a swallow study. So when I was the clinician asking for it, obviously the administrators, the physicians thought it was something completely out of the blue. So I want to share some research about clinical swallow evaluations, but please know that less than 40%, around 40% of the variables that we use in these different CSE components are not evidence-based. Detecting aspiration using a clinical swallow exam is less than 70% accurate. So it's really like you're just guessing about the presence of aspiration or you're guessing that there might be a pharyngeal impairment. But anything beyond the oral phase, you know, the different components like tongue-based retraction, pharyngeal contraction, hyolaryngeal elevation, UES opening, these different physiologic events of swallowing, we cannot see them when we're doing a clinical bedside exam. And also it doesn't tell us anything about the severity of the problem. It doesn't tell us why there's a problem, even if we can be sure the patient is aspirating. And you can't most importantly identify silent aspiration, you know, which occurs when there's no overt signs and symptoms of dysphagia. Um, also, a lot of people who do palpation, they palpate the larynx and they feel like, oh, I can tell if the larynx is elevating. We have a lot of data to show now that what you might think of as limited hyolaryngeal excursion might just be that patient's norm. And again, even if you can palpate that, it's not telling you about any of the other physiologic events of swallowing. So essentially, you're just treating a symptom. You're just treating aspiration or you're just treating, oh, this person can't eat solid food. Let me put them on puree. You're not actually un treating the underlying cause of the problem. So I think if enough of us understood this, you know, we don't have to pretend to know everything by looking at someone at bedside. We don't have x-ray vision. And we went to our physicians that we work with, or we went to administrators and say, look, this is what the research is showing us. I absolutely need access to instrumentals. That's what's going to change this problem. Unless we do something about changing this problem, there's no point saying, what can I do? I don't have access to this. You know, what can I do for our patients? The, the underlying statement is you cannot do enough for your patients. The best analogy you can use is imagine if you walked into a neurologist clinic and he said, well, I think you have a tumor, but I don't have access to a CT or MRI. So, you know, let's just see how it goes. Maybe I'll put you on the operating table and I'll do a surgery or maybe I'll just, you know, maybe I'll just give you some medications and let's just see how your symptoms progress. That is exactly what we're doing with our patients. So I hope those listening just use it as an example that there are other clinicians 
who've been in the same place as you and they've changed their situation by advocating for instrumentals. So please do that. Um, and for those listening who, you know, don't have access to it and have tried everything they could to, to advocate for it. And unfortunately, you're in a place where you're still just limited to the CSE. I completely feel for you. It's a terrible place to be in. But I think the best you can do is just, like I said, keep up with the resources. Spend a lot of time reading about how you can best leverage the clinical swallow exam. You know, it's not just one protocol that you need to follow. There's a reason we have training and we are swallowing specialists. So just integrate that information the best that you can. Like I said, change it based on your patient's presentation, their needs, what their um, underlying medical diagnosis is, and tie it in together as best as you can to make the most effective clinical judgment. And Rabab and Kinneri, please add on to that if you feel like I missed something. Yeah, thank you so much, Renki, for um, just like explaining how important it is to advocate for our patients. I would like to share something. So when I first started working, like at my first job, it was at a skilled nursing and they just didn't have this concept of sending the patient out for a swallow study. So it took a lot of work on my part to like, just like, come up, work with them together, explain to them why it was so important that I just kind of put an analogy like, you know how it's important for a physical therapist to get an x-ray on a patient just to know what that change in the weight bearing status is. That way it's important for me to get that swallowing assessment done so I can make changes to their diet. So exactly. that's what I did. Yeah. You bring in a good point, actually, which I also thought about, you know, if someone says, okay, I understand everything you said, I want to go ahead and change this. What is the next step? Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I think there are resources out there. I wrote an article for the Asha leader. It's called um, building a case for instrumental swallowing assessment. At least start small at your facility. So if you're two or three SLPs, come together and just exactly think of, talk about how you are going to do your clinical swallow exam. Figuring out how you do your CSE, what's the best, most evidence-based method you can use. Then try to figure out a plan for advocating at your facility. And then from there, you know, you can have local community groups of SLPs meeting at the colleges you went to and kind of start, you know, doing lectures through that or journal clubs and kind of expand from there. And I also want to share that a couple of us, you know, since last year in India, I've, I've been fortunate to partner with some wonderful Indian SLPs. They're doing great work in dysphagia management. And we've come together to form something called the SFSD, which is the Society for Feeding and Swallowing Disorders. Our hope is that we can put out more resources related to the standardization of our practices that can help Indian SLPs. So please look out for that. That will be coming to implement changes at a more national level. But again, you can start small and, you know, always reach out to other people who might be in the same position as you use WhatsApp, use Facebook groups that form, you know, form that community that can help you create and advocate for this change. So I hope this is helpful for those listening. I really like what you're saying, Rinki, that standardization starts small. It can start small, take baby steps every day, and then maybe after a few or maybe a lot of steps, you'll actually see a difference. I love it. I love that. Standardization starts small. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> if you take anything away from this podcast, let's take away this, that standardization starts small. Can I just ask a follow-up question for our listeners? Um, a lot of them are doing home visits, like home health. 
So um, just from their perspective, what would be a right time to refer a patient out for an instrumental swallow study? Yeah, that's a good question. And again, like I said, it's not black and white, obviously, right? So I would hate to say this is like on day four of this, you have to send out someone for swallow study because obviously it doesn't matter if you're in home healthy or you're in a hospital that doesn't have MBS. There's no right time. I think when you do your swallow study, uh, when you do your clinical assessment, like I said, you're forming a hypothesis about the problem. So if you've identified this patient has dysphagia, you're suspecting pharyngeal involvement, which most cases, you know, there is an oropharyngeal component. So if you're suspecting pharyngeal impairments, you do need to get that swallow study done if you can to then figure out how you're going to treat this patient because we can only treat what we can see and we should only treat the underlying physiology. So unless we know what's broken, we can't fix it. You know, that would really be the right time to order a swallow study if the patient is able to tolerate the transportation and everything else medically, the person is stable. That would really be my next step to send that patient out and get one. Once you get the information from the exam, you can um, develop your plan of care and target the appropriate impairments. So you have to communicate, I think, as the person referring the patient out specifically what you want, what you're observing you know, like kind of say, this is my hypothesis, but can you please tell me a little more about these specific components and how that might be contributing to the problem? Modified barium swallow impairment profile, MBS, IMP. Please read about that. Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris has done years of research. She's identified 17 components of swallowing kinematic events that we need to be looking at when we're doing our swallow study. I will say my husband being a radiologist also for the longest time just thought all I'm doing is, oh, you guys are just figuring out if the patient aspirates or not. What's the big deal about this swallow exam? And I had to really like school him with him being a physician and explain that we're really looking at so much more in those five minutes in the floral suite or when we're doing our fees. So please educate the clinician doing the exam about these things so you can get the best information. And for those of you doing it, please make sure you're keeping up with research on how to best conduct an instrumental exam so that we're not wasting the patient's time and resources when we're doing these. And I may be biased to the MBS IMP because of Dr. Bonnie Martin-Harris, who's going to be my mentor for my PhD soon. But way before that, the MBS IMP is such a great protocol. Um, my friends in school, grad school, used to make fun of me that I was obsessed with it. (laughs) It's an intensive protocol, but it just gives you so much confidence in your clinical abilities after that. I'm yeah, excited you'll be learning from her and working <laughs> at Northwestern. That's, that's a great opportunity. Thank you. So Rinki, I think it's valid that we talk about the need of the hour. We have summarized that instrumental studies are important and the way to go, but COVID-19 or the coronavirus has impacted so many of our clinical practices. How has it changed dysphagia assessment, treatment protocols for you at your facility? Any advice for clinicians listening in India? It is definitely the need of the hour for our SLPs in India. I know the cases are increasing every day. So, you know, they have to brace themselves if they haven't already for a huge onslaught of these COVID positive patients or patients under investigation with suspected symptoms. It's definitely a challenging time in so many ways because first of all, most of what we do is an AGP, an aerosol generating procedure. 
and we have evidence now to see that the viral the highest amount of viral load for covid-19 is at the around the nasopharynx so it's you know constantly shedding there it exposes us as clinicians and the scariest part is you know it's not even about us getting sick if we are younger we might have milder symptoms but we become carriers of the virus we move on to the next patient and someone who's immunocompromised or someone who's older um can die because of us having the virus and giving it to them it just creates so much anxiety and fear in what you're doing so i think the mental toll which is probably not talked about enough of working during covid-19 has been a lot to deal with and something that all of us struggled with initially the second thing is you have to have full ppe so that includes an n95 mask a face shield a head net you know gloves gowns constantly changing that between patients donning and doffing you know you have to make sure you're doing it well so you're protecting yourself and the patient so that's changed because we're not used to doing that and the most important thing is obviously we can't we were limited in our amount of endoscopic procedures again because of it being an agp and about transporting patients to fluoro suites to do swallow studies so i think it was like a humbling time for a lot of us because sometimes you become over dependent too if you have access to these so it kind of took us back to like i said really relying on your clinical swallow exam your clinical judgment and most importantly working in teams with your nurse she's already gone in to see the patient how can you ask her to screen this patient for swallowing you know working with your physician and seeing should an ng tube be a better option right now if the person is covid positive before you go in you know you're also exposing yourself kind of figuring out when the best timing is for the swallow study what diet we can put these patients on a lot of these patients are trached and on a vent they're intubated their respiratory status is gradually you know and it's changing but it's it's still pretty bad so how can you then incorporate those factors into your recommendations it really takes you back to being a good clinician and i think it will be a good learning experience for everyone but at the same time you know you will have to really be careful about the evidence the recommendations and guidelines everyone out there listening please be safe um the dysphagia research society has a covid-19 task force that i'm chairing and it also has a resource page with everything you need to know it's related to dysphagia and covid-19 so it's free please take the time to read through that so that you can educate people at your hospitals and your teams to make sure you guys are protected thank you for sharing that rinki So Rinki a lot of our listeners reached out to us and wanted to know more about some treatment protocols that you believed have worked well especially in neurodegenerative diseases such as ALS or MS Yeah I that can be like a whole podcast in itself it's really important to even understand how the treatment protocols are divided up so you have strength training exercises like lingual resistance training expiratory muscle strength training cervical flexion exercises so the goal of those is to rebuild the swallow function they're really um dependent on frequency on intensity kind of like following the different um, parameters that we use for other exercise based physiology like our physical therapist you have to be intense you have to have repetitions and make use of that neuroplasticity to improve and rebuild that swallow function then you have compensatory strategies that's more useful for people where you're trying to just bring about some short term changes or adjustments the way they are positioned the way they are using the different apparatus for eating 
maybe they need a chin tuck, maybe they need to slow the rate of swallowing. Those are just different compensatory strategies you can use to minimize the risk of aspiration or make sure they're eating in the most safest and efficient way. It's just something you can do in addition to exercises to make sure the patient is safe. For some patients, like, you know, if you have someone um, who's just had a stroke, if you have someone with dementia, they might have more oral phase deficit. So they may, may need more sensory type of interventions to just get that swallow even going. And then you have different swallow maneuvers and protocols, like the McNeil dysphagia therapy program, or you can have a protocol like for vital stim and amp care, like electrical stimulation, or you have a protocol for using the EMST device or IOP device, the IOP oral performance strengthening instrument. So you can have these different protocols that you implement in therapy. So with each patient, you have to keep in mind their medical diagnosis, which setting there in, you know, what most importantly, what are their physiologic impairments? So you're treating the right thing. If you don't know the physiology, you know, you can't target the treatments, keep that in mind. And for, unfortunately for patients with ALS and more degenerative type of diseases, what we can do for them is really limited. So, you know, we know enough about the disease process to unfortunately know that there's no cure. And eventually these patients are going to lose a lot of their function that will impact their breathing. It will impact their swallowing, you know, keep monitoring that. And I would start having conversations about introducing a PEG tube for feeding to make sure these patients are receiving the nutrition they need. I think as a clinician, do your best to educate yourself about the actual disease, which is ALS or whatever it is you're treating. Know that there's a limited amount you can do in terms of exercises. So it will be mostly compensations. At some point, you will have to tell one of these patients that they, they are now NPO. They cannot swallow because of the disease process. They need a PEG and work with the doctor, work with the team and the family to make this transition as easy for the patient. And, you know, as speech pathologists, remember, it's not just swallowing. They are also going to lose their communication. So work with introducing an AAC device or some form of communication so that these patients can keep communicating with their loved ones um, and using their voice in some way, even in the last stages of the disease. Thank you so much for all that information, Rinki. I myself am a passionate advocate of the SLP's role in Parkinson's disease. Aspiration pneumonia is the leading cause of death, and there's so much that an SLP can do with regards to dysphagia management. So well said. Unfortunately, there's no shortcut to educating yourself, right? You can't replace the two E's in treatment, which is ethics and evidence. And if you don't use both of these to the best of your ability, you cannot treat your patients. And they really deserve that kind of care from us. That's absolutely right. A question that we heard from Indian clinicians, Rinki, is that a lot of patients that we see and treat come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. How do we change our intervention or our treatments or assessment with respect to the background they come from? My answer to that question would be that it shouldn't change how you're providing your care at all. But there will be some cultural and socioeconomic considerations on two things that I could think of was one was obviously the diets or the recommendations you make, you know, they might be exposed to different circumstances surrounding eating, the kind of food they eat. So like, you know, incorporate all of that in your diet recommendations if you are modifying their diet. 
resources might be an issue. So if you, if they need to thicken their food, you know, maybe they can't even afford to buy thickeners in the first place. So you kind of have to keep that in mind and figure out other alternatives that they can use to, to modify their diets. Like I said, and I think the only other thing would, it would uh, impact would be the way you educate these patients, because if you have someone who's not as well educated, you can't give them the same speech that you give someone else who's coming with a master's degree and telling them, Oh, you have dysphagia. This is what it means. These are the recommendations, follow aspiration precautions. They don't even know what the word aspiration means. So I think you really have to take a step back, make your recommendations as easy to follow and understand as possible and take the time to help them understand why this is life threatening, what their problem means, involve other family members and, you know, just kind of make sure there's carryover from clinic to the home. But otherwise I don't think my, treatment would change. Do you feel like yours would? Do you all have anything to add? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think the thing that would change would be the way I'm educating them. And that's something that I'm guilty of too, that sometimes we use our fancy language, that we have to make Mm. sure that the patient understands what we are trying to say. I agree. So as rehabilitation professionals, we know that this is a teamwork and um, in school I always had this model teamwork makes dream work so that's yeah. something every SLP every SLP is familiar with so a lot of our Indian SLPs have reported that they have been facing challenges in advocacy and ever since we started talking today we've been like emphasizing on advocacy So is there any like advice or guidance that you would want to share with our listeners, especially in advocating for ourselves in the best possible way? Advocacy is critical. And I think we really need to have more belief and faith in ourselves and our skills and what we bring to the table, because it's really unfortunate that globally, you know, not just in India, I don't think we're at the place yet where enough physicians and other healthcare professionals really understand our value. As someone who's in some leadership positions or just someone, you know, who came from India had to kind of make my way as you guys have in a different country. I've really learned that nothing's going to change unless we stand up for ourselves, right? It's that famous um, proverb where it says you need to be the change you wish to see in the world. It's not easy. I'm not trying to undermine the kind of efforts it will take for you to advocate. But if you find like-minded individuals to come with you and you know, create awareness about our role. Uh, Research always helps. People love to talk numbers. So if you're at a facility, show them the numbers of what it would cost for them to put a patient on a peg tube. What does it cost to thicken their food? Um, What does it cost to treat someone who comes back to the hospital or is even having complications from aspiration pneumonia versus you just getting a swallow study and hope, you know, maybe minimizing the impact of that or preventing those kind of things in the first place. If you show admin staff, you're saving them money, you know, at the end of it, healthcare is also a business. I think people will be more likely to taking you seriously. They'll know, you know, what you're talking about um, with respect to patient care. And like I said, there's no replacement for evidence. So if you have enough evidence to show like an X-ray or a CT or an MRI, why you need instrumental exams or what your role is in treating trach and vent patients, why you should be intervening early in acute care settings, why you should be working with dementia patients in addition to cognition to help their swallowing or with Parkinson's. My 
recommendations would be arm yourself with evidence and research believe in yourself and like rabab said it's going to start small but hopefully with each step that we take we will continue to see change and i'm going to add i it's nerve wracking just do your best stand up for what you know and you have research backing you as we know in the indian srp community every clinician was once a student that's how we entered the srp world and started seeing patients a question that we've received from many students that are following this podcast is how to transition from being a student clinician to an independent clinician are there training certifications to enhance the use of evidence based practice that's a good question and it's true we all were students right we are still learning i still very much 10 years later consider myself a student you know i don't want people to think that a certification will change everything right you just need to take the effort to learn and whether that's through blogs whether there's that's through a podcast like yours whether that's by reading a textbook as long as you take the effort to read and educate yourself you don't need a certification from a university or a training to give you that stamp that okay now you're a great clinician but you do need to take the time and spend some money to attend conferences india is doing a great job at bringing in expert speakers and um dr langmore just had a fees conference at tata hospital in mumbai reach out to mentors like i said there are senior slps now doing excellent work in mumbai in pune in kerala at aish reach out to them ask them if you can observe them if you have a hospital in your surrounding city or area where you can go and work with them for a few weeks most of us do have access to the internet now and luckily because of the internet and social media we have so many courses available which i'll be sharing i myself have been involved in developing a website called step the swallowing training and education portal where we make information high quality evidence based information everything you need to know about swallowing from normal swallowing to assessment to treatment available for 9 dollars a month which is around what is it 6 700 rupees mm-hmm. yeah so you could pay for that for one month and literally learn everything you need to know about swallowing it's 60 hours of content if you actually took the time to do that so as a student clinician i think you need to seek out education look for supervisors and mentors who can give you that hands on component of training because you know you can get good theoretical knowledge but unless you've shadowed someone and really been on the floors to understand how people make clinical decisions how they are doing instrumental exams there's no replacement for that so try to get in an observership or fellowship of some kind and if you want to specialize with adults or peds or you know more specialized training with head and neck cancer seek out those kinds of continuing education courses or conferences you know eventually you will reach a point where i promise you you will start feeling competent and confident in your decision so don't don't feel bad if you're not there yet it just takes some work and you will get there i promise you we've all been through it yes ranki that's really amazing advice for our student clinicians especially who are transitioning into the real world and like just being out on their own so well ranki any final thoughts or just anything you would like to share with our listeners Yeah, first of all, again thank you to Kennedy and Rabab for having me. I'm excited that this is a way for me to connect with Indian SLPs. I'm sure I speak on behalf of Rabab and Kennedy as well. The reason they are doing this too is because we all come from India. You know, we owe a lot to the training we had. I definitely do to AYJ um to the bringing I had the value system, you know, the cultural 
considerations that we can only get from working in a different country. I think it helps us approach our patients differently and be more empathetic to their needs, especially if they come from a diverse background. I know I feel really strongly about making sure the care we provide is really clinically appropriate and culturally appropriate for our patients. So I do want to do all I can to make sure clinicians around the world, even clinicians in India are not feeling like they're not getting adequate training or resources. You can reach out to any of us anytime. And I think with COVID-19, the one thing we've learned is that there's no concept of these barriers between countries anymore, right? Like it's come to the point where it's us versus the virus. So I, I kind of think of swallowing like that or I feel like that it can be us versus them where all of us clinicians, we're all doing the same thing. We want to do what's best for our patients. We want to become swallowing specialists. How can we come together to share our knowledge and our resources, our experience to help each other and support each other and do the best for our patients? So I just want you to encourage to reach out to others, keep up with evidence, provide ethical care. And just like I said, you just need to be the change that you wish to see. So hopefully this will encourage all of you to do that. And I, I wish everyone the best. So thank, thank you so much for having me. That's so great, Rinki. Thank you so much. You're absolutely right when you say none of us would be the SRP we are without our background in India. So this podcast is a way for us to pay it forward. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you. We are sure our listeners appreciate you so much as well. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back next time with a brand new episode on June 10th. Stay tuned to our social media to learn more. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And we are so grateful for all the support we've received and can't wait to see where this podcast goes. Thank you. See you soon.